Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly at the start of a brand new year. At least it will be when you hear this because we're recording it a bit in advance. I'm Rowan Hooper, I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Kat Delange, New Scientist Features Editor. Joining us today are New Scientist reporters Leia Liverpool and Adam Vaughan. Hello. Hello. Today we're doing a preview of the coming year to look at four stories that are going to be big in the weeks and months ahead. Vaccines and coronavirus, of course. But also, it's another massively important year for climate, so we'll be digging into that. We're also previewing the Mars missions that are landing in February and looking at why it's going to be a big year for microplastics. Yeah, this is going to be a great primer for what you need to know. And also, we're going to share our cultural treats like books and films and things that we're looking forward to this year. But first, set yourself up beautifully for the year with a discounted subscription to New Scientist. Yes, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist just by going to newscientist.com slash pod20. You get all the benefits of the premium content in the mag plus access to the treasures of the archive. Just go to newscientist.com slash pod20 and you'll get the money off when you subscribe. Right, let's start with the issue that has defined our lives for the last year and is certainly going to loom large in 2021. And of course, it's coronavirus. Yeah, so we've spent a lot of last year thinking about whether we're actually going to have a coronavirus vaccine. And there's really good news on that front. We're going into this year with at least one. But that doesn't mean it's all over yet. And we're going into this new year with a kind of interim period between having the vaccine and having everybody vaccinated. So we're going to take a really in-depth look at, at what that year is going to look like. So one question at the top of the list is when will life get back to normal? Yeah, we definitely need to get a grip on this don't we because you know we've had lockdowns and then you know strong restrictions that basically have come too late according to what scientists have been calling for and then they've been relaxed too early so we've got this you know cycle of lockdown and relaxation and there's real there's been a failure to get the virus under control uh, adam you've been looking into this when when's life going to get back to normal oh, i wish i could say i had a crystal ball uh, however you can make some sort of educated guesses so when, you know, when some of the first vaccines were found to, um, you know, have def- decent efficacy back in November, a few people started saying quite sort of aggressive things like April would be aggressive in terms of timescale, that April would be when things get back to normal in 2021. And, and it's clear 
I think it's clear that that's not really going to be the case just because of the, you know, at least in the UK, because of the sequencing of vaccinating yeah, everyone, because you're going to, you've got first got to start with this, you know, group of the most vulnerable and we've had more than a hundred thousand or so of those so far in the first, you know, and, and probably that number's going to go, will have gone up by the time people are listening to this. Um, and then, and then it's got widened out to the broader population. The UK's, government scientific advisors stage they think april is unrealistic for when things will be back to normal but they do think that that is the point when things might start getting back to normal so that might be the point at some uh, which some restrictions become lifted but it's not like we're all gonna you know bid our masks overnight and all just go back out and party and obviously things getting back to normal will be based on people getting the vaccine how big a problem is vaccine hesitancy going to be adam I don't want to overstate it, but it does definitely seem like it's going to be an issue. Uh, it seems to be about a quarter of people in, in the UK and the figures are somewhat similar elsewhere. About a quarter of people in the UK have some sort of hesitance and hesitancy, according to research by Daniel Freeman at University of Oxford and colleagues. Um, but it's worth saying that that quarter, that, that spans quite a big sort of spectrum of views. So that includes don't knows, possibly's and definitely won't. So I asked um, I asked the UK's chief scientific advisor about this, um, and it's Patrick Valance, and, and he told me the vast majority of people want to get vaccination. He said there's then a group with legitimate sets of questions. How do I know it's safe? Is it right for me? And he said many of the people labelled as a vaccine hesitant actually just have a series of questions that need to be addressed. And he said there's only and he said really there's only a third group of anti-vaxxers, and you're never going to persuade them come what may. But he said they are a very very small group. Kat, what about this question of whether we should force people to take the vaccine? Mm, It's a really interesting question and not all countries are in agreement on it. So in the US, Joe Biden said that he will not force people to have the vaccine. In the UK, there are no plans for it to be mandatory, but it hasn't been completely ruled out yet. Um, But then in other places, so in Sao Paulo in Brazil, the vaccine will eventually be required by law. So there's there are different approaches. But you sort of think, well, in some places, so in Australia, for instance, some benefits are withheld from parents who won't um, vaccinate their children, a kind of no jab, no pay policy. It's not unheard of. And um, when you think about it, some people might end up feeling like they have no choice because of policies within a country that um, require people to be vaccinated. So maybe in care homes, even if residents have been vaccinated, they might ask people, um, visitors or people who work there um, to have the vaccine in order to protect that small tranches of, of the population who don't get protected. And the CEO of uh, the Australian airline Qantas has said that he reckons that they'll make um, vaccination mandatory for people who want to fly on their aeroplanes long haul. So in the end, you might end up having these sort of mini policies in place that make life um, kind of very difficult for people. And, and they might feel like they're actually having to, to do it anyway. Yeah, sorry to butt in. I mean, that's kind of chimes a bit of what people I've spoken to have said that, you know, we might actually end up with kind of accidentally mandated because it's not necessarily done by top down, but bottom up, you know, by people like airlines and events organisers saying, well, you need to, you know, so it sort of just becomes the, de- the default rather than it being led by policy, which is interesting. And if passports are issued, Im- immunity passports are issued, then it, then it will kind of get, you might also get this kind of accidental mandatory vaccination policy. Yeah, exactly. The the Immunity passports is interesting because we don't yet know whether people who are vaccinated actually transmit the virus or not, whether or not they become sick. 
the, the vaccine will prevent them from getting sick, but they might still transmit it. And so the value of an immunity passport is actually up for debate. We are getting a bit more of an idea about how long immunity will last, though, aren't we, Kat? Um, you know, like whether we're going to need boosters, for example. We are. The The science around immunity has has changed quite a lot and we're, we're building up this picture piece by piece. And it seems like, you know, there's this body of evidence now that suggests that immunity will last for probably at least six months. It's not it's not definite, but um, at the beginning, people were worried about a massive drop off in antibodies and thought this meant that immunity wasn't going to last. But actually, it's quite normal for um, antibodies to drop off and other immune cells will still be there to um, remember the virus and to act if you get reinfected. So it looks like immunity will last for about six months or more. But we so that means we might have to have boosters and it's going to be an, an ongoing thing. Okay, now look, Kat, moving away from COVID stuff um, to cultural things, what are you looking forward to at the start of this year? You know, is there any books or films or telly that you're particularly that's on your radar? Yeah, so my household uh, in particular, my husband's particularly keen to see the new Wonder Woman film that came out on Christmas (laughs) Day. So that's top of our list. Um, I, I really miss going to the cinema. I don't know about you. And uh, this year, I just haven't, I've had so little time for for reading and for watching things with everything else that's been going on. So I've got a bit of a back catalogue. So I really want to watch this Babies series on Netflix, all about child development. And I've got this book by my bedside by um, Maria Konnikova called The Biggest Bluff, which I've started reading and I'm slowly making my way through it. But that is, I really want to finish that off. Now let's move off planet. Yeah, I'd I'd really like to actually, can we? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, failing that. uh, There are several missions to Mars that are actually reaching a crucial stage in the next couple of months. And by crucial, I mean they're actually landing on the planet. Our space reporters, Leah Crane and Chelsea White, are previewing this for us. And they're also going to let us know what books and films they're looking forward to this year. Over to you two. Thanks, Kat. The coming year is a big one for space, and we don't even have to wait all that long. There's a whole swarm of spacecraft arriving at Mars this February. Leia, what are all these missions? There are three. The United Arab Emirates has their first Mars mission, which is an orbiter called HOPE. NASA's Perseverance rover is going to land. And China sent the Tianwen-1 mission, which has both an orbiter and a lander. Wow, that really is a swarm. So who gets there first? The first to arrive will be the HOPE orbiter, which should go into orbit around February 9th. I know there have been a lot of orbiters around Mars over the years, so what's special about this one? HOPE will have a different orbit to any of the other spacecraft orbiting Mars. It's this really long elliptical orbit that takes it really far away from the planet. Huh. It seems like a farther orbit would make it harder to take measurements. So is that actually good? Yeah, the elliptical orbit will let it take pictures of the whole planet instead of just parts, so it'll be able to watch as the weather changes day by day. The folks running the mission are actually calling it the first Martian weather satellite because of that, and then of course it'll be monitoring over longer timescales too. And is there any particular question it's trying to answer? Yeah, one of the big ones is how the Martian atmosphere disappears over time. Ah, a whole lot of it has disappeared, right? There's dry lakes and riverbeds on Mars, so it must have once had enough of an atmosphere to keep liquid water on its surface. It did. It used to probably be really, really wet. Like in its early, early days as a planet? 
<laughs> yeah, and at some point it just lost almost all of its atmosphere and most of that water evaporated. It's still losing atmosphere to this day. So Hope is going to look into the processes that would have made Mars into this dry wasteland that we know it as now. I think I'd actually prefer like a really lush Mars. Wouldn't we all? <laughs> so are the other missions doing different science there? Yeah, so the second mission to get there will probably be the Tianwen-1 mission. What do you mean probably? China notoriously doesn't release much information about their missions, so we don't know the exact date it'll arrive. But when it does get there, its orbiter will have some of its own scientific instruments, but its main purpose is going to be relaying data from the rover back to Earth. Cool. Is the rover anything like the other ones that are already on Mars? It's a little bit more basic than the recent ones that NASA has sent, and it's also a little bit smaller. So does that small size mean it can do less than those other rovers? Its instruments are maybe less sophisticated than the ones on, say, Curiosity, but it does still have a radar system, so it can look below the surface. It has a magnetic field detector. It can analyze samples of Mars dust. And of course, it's also got cameras. Oh, nice. So we're in for some cool pictures from Mars one of these days, huh? Yeah, February will come with an absolute explosion of Mars pictures. (laughs) There's one more uh, lander that we haven't talked about, right? That's the NASA mission? Yeah, so that's the Perseverance rover, which is pretty similar to the Curiosity rover in size. And the landing is going to be almost the same, but it has a different goal. Its big main task is going to be to collect a bunch of samples and leave them there so a future mission can go pick them up and bring them back to Earth. Why do it that way? That seems like a really complicated situation. It is definitely a complicated situation. Uh, The main reason is mission complexity. It's really hard to make a mission that will take the samples and bring them back. So splitting that up into two missions just makes life a lot easier engineering-wise. But is it just going to be leaving those samples, or is it going to do its own science too? It's definitely going to be doing its own science too. Um, Its other goal as a mission is to look for signs of ancient life, and the crater where it's landing is potentially one of the best landscapes on Mars to look for those signs because it has this old river delta that could maybe have fossilized microbes in it. Wow, that would be a huge discovery. It would be an enormous discovery, and that's why NASA has done this whole mission with that as one of its main goals. Well, with these two new rovers on Mars, how many are up there now? There are a bunch of defunct rovers, but for a while now, Curiosity has been the only functioning one up there, all on its lonesome, and now there's going to be three. Will they meet up and have a little rover party? (laughs) No, um, unfortunately not. They're all going to really different areas, so they'll all be too far away from one another to have a rover party. It's a bit like everyone else right now. Maybe they can have a Zoom party. (laughs) Yeah. That seems a little sad, but I guess it makes sense not to waste a huge amount of money going to the same place with several rovers. So I'll just live with my disappointment. (laughs) I mean, the fact that there are any rovers up there at all is still pretty incredible. Good point. Um, Before we hand back, fill me in on what you're looking forward to for the new year. Well, as far as sci-fi goes here, I'm looking forward to the new Dune movie, which is coming in October. And uh, hopefully by then I'll have gotten a COVID vaccine and I can see it in a theater. I miss movie theaters. How about you? Well, Chuck Wendig is writing a book, a sequel to his book Wanderers, which was the most engrossing sci-fi I read in 2020 by far. But 
that's not coming out until 2022. So for 2021, I'm looking forward to the Space Jam movie sequel starring Bugs Bunny, LeBron James, and Aliens. (laughs) That sounds like a crew you'd fit right into. Yeah, all right. Fair enough. (laughs) That's all for now, everyone. Back to Rowan and Kat in London. Thanks, Chelsea and Leia. Before we get back into it, we want to tell you about our series of online lectures for 2021, the Big Thinkers series. Yes, we've got 10 online lectures in 2021, covering everything from the end of ageing to extraterrestrial life and quantum computing to AI, all brought to you by world-class scientists and experts. The first one on January the 21st is The End of Ageing by longevity expert Aubrey de Grey. Aubrey de Grey is a world-class researcher on lifespan and ageing, so it's going to be a brilliant event. And you can save money off the standard ticket price by purchasing an annual subscription to all 10 of these live online Big Thinker lectures. Uh, And they're also available on demand. Uh, Or you can purchase single tickets also at an early booking rate. Uh, So go to newscientist.com slash events to hear from the finest minds in science in 2021. Right, back to Earth. 2020 was supposed to be the year of big international action on climate change, but yep, it all got messed up by the pandemic. Meanwhile, you know, it's looking like 2020 will turn out to have been the second warmest year on record, and that's despite uh, a calling La Nina effect. So Adam, you've been looking into what all this means for 2021. Um, First of all, what about emissions? Oh, I've got to be honest with you, Rowan, I'm feeling reluctant having written a, to make any predictions given how badly run by ones, ones were a couple of years ago. Uh, so in terms of what we do know is that carbon emissions in thanks to this is thanks to a, a, an ongoing project called the Global Carbon Budget, which is an international endeavour. We know that carbon emissions in 2020 fell by about 7%, which is absolutely monstrous. It's the biggest since World War II and it completely bucks the trend of going up in recent years. Now, because it's such a big fall, we, you know, the, the team behind that, they are pretty confident that it's going to go up again in 2021. Um, exactly longer term, really what's going to depend, you know, sort of dictate the direction of of emissions is going to really be the sort of post-COVID stimulus packages and how they're spent. So, you know, for example, uh, UNEP, the United Nations Environment Programme, they've done some interesting analysis where they've calculate if we have a really green recovery it's all the you know big substantial amount of money all the billions being spent to get economies going goes on electric cars and renewable energy and energy efficiency and all those good things then by 2030 greenhouse gas emissions will be 25 percent lower globally than they would have been so that's a you know a quarter is a huge figure when it comes to global emissions so that's the really the, the key thing what they you know, what the recovery from covid is like yeah but we haven't been seeing so far that the stimulus packages have been spent on on green projects it's been so it's been called a brown recovery not a green recovery right yeah so yeah i mean the i mean the, the, there's been a lot of talk or you'll have heard this horrible phrase build back better coming from the mouths of a lot of politicians but those people have actually looked at the figures on you know and there's several different analyses and one is by bloomberg new energy finance you know that one for example found that about one percent of stimulus announced so far is what you would categorize as green there is some so that's you know obviously not enough um no. there, and, and and so there's a disconnect between the rhetoric and the action uh, there's some comfort to be taken from the fact that really we're still in the emergency phase at the moment a lot of governments haven't actually announced their stimulus 
So it's just to watch this space one, really. I mean, with with uh, President Biden rejoining the Paris Agreement in January, um, we can hope maybe that this is going to drag some more people along and make some more of this recovery put into into green projects, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, the US is is totally pivotal, right? I mean, the the, the, the triangle of the sort of holy triangle is China, Europe, and and the US. But the US is sort of important, you know. The, them rejoining Paris, that's like complete bottom lowest bar thing, right? That's, yeah. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's you know, given. The interesting things will be what they are doing domestically. So, we, you know, they've already, he's already said, him and Harris have already said that they are going to do a net zero target for 2050. And there's some talk of some interim stuff. So we should also get next year, hopefully, almost certainly, we should get a new, um, what's called an NDC, which is basically... UN jargon for their country's climate plan. So that would be nearer term for 2030. But then also, like you sort of alluded to there, it's just the fact that the US is going to start engaging with that international process on climate change again and all the diplomatic muscle that brings. It really does matter. That really what, you know, John Kerry and and, uh, Barack Obama, what they did in terms of leadership ahead of Paris was one of the reasons it, it was a success. So that could really, really shift things this year. What about this climate action tracker projection that um, the recent net zero goals that we we have are still going to bust pretty much the the Paris deal's upper limit of two degrees? Yeah, so the, I mean, this is sort of sort of mixed a mixed bag, as, as it were. I mean, the, the climate action tracker. The interesting thing is, like, if you go back about ten years, their their forecasts were that you know the targets and policies added up to well north of three degrees, which is you know. It's all bad news, right? Every 0.1 degree of warming is bad news, but that that's really not where you want to be above three degrees. Um, but they found, as you say, they found that all the sort of flurry of net zero goals for the middle of the century, that can see temperatures at about 2.1 degrees. And, and that is above the, the Paris deal of, you know, two and 1.5. But it's worth saying that is like the first time it's got anywhere near sort of within striking distance. There's always been an enormous gulf. So that really is... Is progress. I, I suppose the flips. The, the reason it's a mixed picture is the bad news is that when that group actually looked at what governments are got are doing, what their policies are, rather than their targets, that puts her on track for more like two point nine degrees. So, which is back into bad news territory. So, look, you know, what can we do? Citizen pressure is is going to be vital, isn't it? Because the governments are. They, it's like turning a super tanker isn't it it just takes them so long to to really change their policies so what can we do yeah i mean it really it really is that just people need to do we all need to as individuals you know citizens we all need and the groups that we're part of whether those are local groups religious groups you know professional groups we we all need just to keep the pressure up really because that is what that's what governments respond to you know you saw that in the uk in uh, 2019 when there was lots of protests and then I think what's been really noticeable in 2020 uh, was the fact that you know young people were forced off the streets by Covid and you know they were still doing everything virtually striking and so on but it's much less visible online than it is when you've got thousands of people in the streets so obviously when that's possible for people to do you know health and safety permitting then that's going to be really important I think and just you know all those into as many different groups adding their voice really that's that's going to be the key thing because just people really need to keep the pressure up on governments okay adam thanks for that before you go what are your tips for culture for what you're looking forward to at the start of the year so i being a climate geek one thing on my reading list uh, is bill gates's new 
book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Mm-hmm. Out yeah, that's online as well. Yeah, that's out in February. So I'm hoping that that has all the answers and we can just fix it all. <laughs> uh, so that, that is that. I lo- like Cat, I like going to cinema and I've really missed that. And so I'm very much looking forward to going to see the new Bond film whenever it's finally released and having some, turning my brain off basically for a couple of hours. And uh, beyond that, I wouldn't mind. On the, I'd love a. I don't. I don't think I'm going to get one. I would love a sequel to the Queen's Gambit because I absolutely love that series, which was on streaming last year. That was fantastic. Do you not think there'll be a sequel? I think there'll be. I think there'll be a sequel. Oh God, I hope there is, Cat. I really hope there was. It's such a su- it's such a beautiful show, and also it's got me back into chess in a big way. So that's been. Well, nice. So it'd be like Rocky Two, and the, a new a new <laughs> contender comes along and challenges her for the the title. <laughs> I hope it's got I hope it's got a montage worthy of that with that theme music as well. <laughs> now, Leal, you've been looking ahead to what we're going to discover about microplastics in the new year. Yeah, so in recent years, we've been learning that microplastics are pretty much everywhere we've looked for them. And there's mounting evidence that we eat, drink and breathe microplastics. But what we don't really know is if these these tiny particles actually get absorbed into our cells and impact our health. And is that going to change this year? Yes, I've been speaking to uh, microplastics and toxicology researchers, and it's looking like this year we can expect to discover whether microplastic particles make it into our blood, uh, so an important gateway into our organs and tissues, uh, and then crucially, if they can actually infiltrate our cells. So presumably you have to have really small particles for them to get into the cells. Yeah, and this is the problem, really. So before we can really understand how microplastics might impact our health, we have to be able to detect them in the first place. And most studies of microplastics so far have focused on particles in the micrometer range, uh, I think because these are easiest to detect. But actually, the smaller a plastic particle is, the more easily it will be able to enter a cell, uh, and also the greater the chance of there being an adverse effect. So when we think about the potential for these particles to cross the blood-brain barrier, for example, then we're really talking about nanoscale particles. Can we detect them at this size in the body? Yeah, so this ability is just coming online. Uh, Earlier this year, a a team of researchers at Arizona State University uh, developed a new method to detect and quantify both microplastic and nanoplastic fragments in human tissues and organs. Um, I wrote about it for New Scientist at the time. Uh, And researchers I spoke to recently said they think advances in analytical chemistry and microscopy techniques will be really um, important to improve our ability to study any potential impact of these these really tiny particles on our health. Do you have a sense from them of, of whether we should be worried yet or do we just have to wait until they can actually apply this technology? Yeah, I think that's a it's a really good question, since I feel like we constantly hear these stories about microplastics leaking into our tea, or recently I covered a story about microplastics leaking into infant formula uh, from plastic baby feeding bottles. But it's like, what should we do with this information? Um, I did actually put this question to one of the researchers uh, behind the story about microplastic particles leaking into baby formula. Uh, and at the time, he said that if people are concerned, then they can reduce the level of microplastics that are generated uh, during formula preparation uh, by minimizing the plastic bottle's exposure to heat and shaking, for example. Uh, so he suggested preparing the baby formula in a separate non-plastic container and only transferring it over into a, a sterilized plastic feeding bottle uh, once the formula has cooled down. But yeah, I agree. I think this is this is really important. We need to understand how this actually impacts health uh, before we can decide like what we could do about it. Yeah, so we need to cut down on our plastic and then we'll find out later this year whether or not these microplastics that are already out there really are a problem to our health or not. 
Yeah, definitely. I think the bigger picture here is that we really need to think about cutting down on our use of plastic as much as possible. We still don't know about the health uh, impacts on humans, but there's already evidence that plastic is harming wildlife and our environment. So I think that's enough of a case to cut down. And uh, finally, Layal, what are you looking forward to for, for this year? I wish I could say the third Jurassic World movie, but sadly for me, that's been delayed until 2022 because of that whole pandemic thing that's been happening. Uh, but luckily, there's more sci-fi to look forward to. So at the moment, I'm reviewing a book uh, called Remote Control. Uh, it's by Nnedi Okorafor, and it's about a girl who discovers a strange meteor, and basically it changes her life forever. Uh, I believe that's coming out later on in January, so look out for that. Rowan, what about you? What are you looking forward to? Um well, so yeah, later in the year, I'm really looking forward to the Dune movie. But right now on Netflix, you can watch the Dread movie. I don't know if anyone's seen that. It's, it's from a few years ago, but it's just come on Netflix now. It's Alex Garland's movie of the the classic 2000 AD character Judge Dread, set in a future mega city in North America. Uh, that's a lot of fun, and it's got Cersei from Game of Thrones on it as well. If uh, if that's an added bonus, and books. My own book is out in a couple of weeks, actually, but uh, that's probably bad form to say I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> but yeah, other than that, Elizabeth Colbert, um, she's got a new book in a few months as well called Under a White Sky. Uh, and that's looking at basically whether we can engineer our way out of the climate and environment crisis. Um, and I'm going to watch Tenet again on Blu-ray. Oh, yeah, I want to watch that too. See if I can understand it. <laughs> I think, Ro- I think, Rowan, I think your hopes of trying to understand it, I think that you... <laughs> <laughs> that's very quixotic well, I must say though you can't say it but I, I, I can ask what's the name of your new book because I'm interested uh, it's called How to Spend a Trillion Dollars uh, and it's out on January the 14th but we, we might mention it again on the podcast <laughs> watch out Bill Gates yeah that's all for this week thanks for joining us Leal and Adam and thank you all for listening yes and thanks for your support as we go into our second year of the weekly podcast we look forward to hearing from all of you throughout this year uh, at New Scientist Pod on Twitter. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. This podcast is produced by Ollie Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.